0: Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Menno Henselmans back on the podcast. Uh, we're going to do a really cool q and uh, I gathered questions from across the social media, and we have some really cool questions to dive into. So first of all, though, Menno, I, I've been doing this with a few guests lately who have been on the show a few times. I don't know how it, people like it, but um, hopefully people will respond and let me know. But just like an update on kind of where you are as an individual mm-hmm. in terms of like, I know you lift you like training you've competed um you have comp- have you competed before you've got into competition mm-hmm. shape i know that for yeah. fact and i think you did yeah, compete where are you right now with everything in your own kind of personal bodybuilding endeavors
1: um probably not going to compete anytime soon again it's just too much uh stress on work um and actually i prefer photo shoots like if i'm, I'm going that route, like you create something permanent i like that uh let me show you also have photos, but it's a hit or a miss if they, you know, what the lighting is like and everything. Um, I'm, I'm bulking at the moment. I actually tried uh, basically the whole almost one and a half years. I've mostly bulked and doing everything like very uh, optimally. I uh, made a few changes as well to some of the things that I did nutrition-wise. Like I used to like being at a very low body fat percentage. They There very long term. Uh, and for convenience sake, at two meals a day. But like looking at my results, I'm actually thinking it's, it might be a bit more detrimental than I thought to have just two meals. So I think I'm actually in pretty good shape, uh, muscle wise. Like I'm at, um, like with a little bit of built now, now I'm cutting, just doing a mini cut. I'm at 92 kilos. I'm at like 95 um, when uh, somewhat built up, which is not as lean as people are. Um, as I'm used for, or um, as I'm known for, but it's still, you know, still have abs. And that's pretty good. I'm actually pretty happy with that. I think I'm actually up at least a pound or a kilo compared to before the build. And I think that's mostly due to the nutrition side, like the meal frequency. And before that, I may have actually spent too much time uh, staying really lean. Like I was probably at the, I spent a, maybe a good year or so at like 7% body fat. And I think that I may right. have actually taken at all like not counter shape but not far off from it and um actually when i did the the video with uh, with jeff nippert in bali i was like yeah i used to look better
0: (laughs) so yeah it's actually really cool hearing um what you're doing because obviously you stay up to date with what's going on you're obviously a coach as well so you're helping people try and get there and you're known for trying to do things optimally so it's interesting mm -hmm. to hear like you're even experimenting trying new things i think i've heard you think at least that you're very close and i guess it's no mm, secret that you're sure. very close to your generic uh genetic limit um, yeah. but it's cool to know that you've maybe gained some muscle mass just through kind of some and nutritional tweaks which i mean nutrition i would say is generally one of the ones that it, for most people i hope is a little easier so was mm-hmm. it just the protein frequency dosing through the day that you changed mostly there
1: yeah i think that has had the biggest impact plus maybe detrimental effects of long term being very lean yeah so I think one of those, that, that's the thing I, with anecdotes like NS1, you never know because I changed both at the same time.
0: Yeah. So true. you never know
1: which one was the, uh which had more of an effect. And but you I do t- think, uh, yeah, Sorry. the two meals was also like this last year, I think six months ago or so, there was actually a study that came out showing that uh even if you have a very small third meal, it's probably not optimal. Like you actually need three substantial protein servings per day to get maximum gains.
0: Okay. No, yeah, really interesting. And then, just out of interest, I think you tend to have a smaller surplus. That tends to be your recommendation for more advanced trainees. Is that right? Is that I how you went? like
1: uh, lean bulking? Yeah. Like stay keeping it very lean. not not like uh, I do think a lot of people also, especially when they've become really lean, it's sort of addictive, and they're too hesitant to to bulk up. I see that a lot in clients. Once they've they've tasted the shreds, yeah. then um, you know you you don't want to lose it but if you try to basically you're you're barely gaining weight like if you're not gaining weight you're not gaining muscle so uh, you do have to be putting on weight but i do think that if you're there's a general rule of thumb if you if you see objective increases in body fat like 2 weeks in a row it's probably too much
0: okay and is that do you measure that generally visually as well for body fat or do you do calipers uh, or yeah
1: i like calipers but yeah. using specific methods and instructing people how to use them and using the right ones is very important um Caliper's probably I'm the most fan of. Waist circumference is actually not too bad, but yeah. someone has to have a steady diet. Otherwise, you know, with bloating, and if they have like GI issues, then that can really uh, skew with the, uh, the waist measurements. Yeah.
0: And you're quite tall as well for people referencing your weight. You're like, you're yeah. over six foot? <laughs> I'm six foot one. Six foot one, cool yeah awesome yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah it spreads every it spreads at all longer five, five foot eight ninety five kilos would be nice <laughs> yeah very nice <laughs> awesome Menno. uh I think well yeah i I want some feedback from the listeners so they can let me know if they enjoyed kind of just getting an update on where you're at but uh so the first question that we've had come through was from Brett McGee and he has asked uh, I would like to know if there is any exercise science or nutrition research that is currently in the works or planning to be studied that's surprising or interesting to him? So anything interesting in the works?
1: Um, There are a few things that um, um, depends on what you mean by like in the works. Like what I have personally in the works, I have a study on uh, intermittent fasting that's delayed due to corona. We lost one of the cohorts, uh, which really sucked, but I think that's going to be this year, like late this year, probably that we publish it. Diet break study, I've I've talked a bit about that before. And it's now, it's basically echoing the results of the the last diet break study, which wasn't too positive. Um, Our results are are very similar. Uh, In terms of upcoming research, actually, I think the corona kind of uh, has had a uh, a negative influence on the research uh, state, one of the many side effects. Because if you look look at the amount of papers published, it's it's, uh, definitely a bit less than normal i'd say especially in terms of the the things we really find interesting which makes sense you know just like our study if you have a cohort like longer term study uh strength for knees where it's very important that everything's the same they're tracking their nutrients uh, their macros then if corona happens basically your study validity goes right out the window yeah
0: absolutely actually out of interest so your your diet break study it hasn't been published yet has it not yet No. no Can can I ask questions about it, <laughs> at all, or uh, a, li-
1: a little bit? Yeah, but, but so, it's probably going to be published, uh, or we're submitting it for publication. Bill Campbell's like working on the last edits. Okay. We're, um, uh, we have another round because when the we're almost ready for publication, but then the other guy breaks study got published, so we want to oh, test right. <laughs> it with those findings, etc. Uh, and I think Bill has another few uh, things he wants to make clear, but cool. we're in the last edit rounds. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess actually my question might be not totally specific to that study. It was, I had Jackson on talking about his, and I'd love your view on, because his cohort, they were kind of lean males. I'm not sure how lean, like in your head, you're like, in my head, I was like, eight, mm. like they're like 18% body fat or something. So I was like, no, that's not that lean. Were your guys and maybe girls in there as well, were they leaner? Uh, and do you think the difference, if they weren't, or if you think people were leaner, do you think the there would be differences for the diet breaks? Do you think they'd be like, I don't know, even negative mm-hmm. or positive? What, what do you think might happen?
1: Yeah. We didn't select a specific population for this, like obviously strength trained, but not a specific body fat range. So it's quite different. Yeah. I don't think we had anyone in, in like contest. That's actually also hard because they usually differ from other people. Mm. So if you do a study on competitors, it's often a study exclusively on competitors. It would be interesting to see if the findings differ, but as a general rule of thumb, I think if you don't have a very good reason why results would differ due to some factor, um, in research you actually often see that they don't. Like maybe it's, like interaction effects are actually quite rare in general. Like something causes an effect and another thing may also have an effect, but when there's an interaction between two things, you actually don't see that too often in biology. Um, So, I don't think it would have a, a massive difference.
0: Yeah, kind of the conclusion me and Jackson somewhat came to was you could almost, rather than extending your diet, using those on the kind of within that phase of a contest prep, you could almost save them and use it towards the end of a prep, like eating up into shows potentially, reversing out if you were ready mm-hmm. early, which, uh, yeah, it sounded like a more yeah. favorable strategy. And I know people use I'm, it.
1: I'm actually a fan of that. Uh, if you have time, then it's also. Um, like psychologically as long as you're, you're staying lean and like the last weeks when you're, you're increasing energy intake um, you just feel much better and I think for a lot of people especially for female competitors if you just have higher well-being and confidence for something like bikini or, or men's fitness model your overall appearance and you know um, outlook how you carry yourself is actually very underrated I feel it's not like even with bodybuilding it matters probably more than than people think because you know we're humans we don't see we're not like a DEXA scanner that just goes like, <laughs> yeah. you know, total fat free mass uh, rank them. Uh, you know, you see an individual and if, if they, they look gaunt and like, you know, they're they're just standing there uh, and they're shredded, but they also look like they're about to die, then you probably just don't evaluate it that positively. Whereas if someone's like, you know, this this radiant bloom of uh, of well-being and muscularity, then they just catch your attention more. I think even for the bodybuilding class, but especially for like bikini and men's fitness, it, that's a big impact
0: yeah i can definitely attest to that and the nice thing i guess someone might argue the diet breaks are like practicing maintenance so at the end of the diet it becomes easier to transition but also with the reverse kind of uh, of calories you're kind of at maintenance near enough towards the end so it's like a nice transition towards then getting into a bigger surplus to like recover after the show and things so yeah it's, it's cool to know that you're also kind of you like that approach as well Mm because it's nice when people align (laughs) with their ideas especially smart people who have come about it from a different angle so that's really cool Um, he had a second question and that was uh, why do certain people seem to have more adaptive metabolisms when it comes to cutting and massing than others is there a mechanism or a type of gene that would influence this
1: yeah there have been some genes identified Um, it's mostly correlational so I'm not sure if that all it shows is that it's additional support that, yes, there is actually genetic variability in terms of how adaptive our metabolisms are. Uh, I always use myself as an example of very adaptive. Like I have to, for, for contest leanness, shoot leanness, I have to get to 1,900, at some point even 1,800 calories a day. Like Legitimately, nothing happens if I stay at 1,900. Uh, and Interestingly, it's another topic that I've presented about a few times uh, in recent webinars. Cardio also does nothing for me at that body fat percentage. Like I can be at 1900, which, and I would not have believed this myself if I had not experienced it before. I do 30 minutes of cardio a day, every single day for a week, still nothing happens. I go to 1800 calories, I lose fat, like consistently. So um, there, there is there is a lot of variability. And when I'm, when I'm bulking, I can go up to 4,000 easily, closing it on 5,000 if I'm also pretty active and I bicycle to the gym. And, you know, there is, of course, a weight differential. It's at some point almost 10 kilos, but it's still um, a massive difference. You're literally talking about, you know, almost 2.5 times the energy intake uh, when cutting versus poking. Whereas other people, I have one client, for example, who I think he, he like cuts on 2,300 and boasts on 2,800. Wow. So (laughs) (laughs) it's, uh, you know, very little difference. And if we actually, with some clients, I don't bother to make 50, cal- uh, 50 calorie differences in energy intake because it's within the margin of yeah. error. You know, if you, you, your scoops are a bit bigger than you, you think, but for him, it makes a significant consistent effect every time wow. 50 calories difference, but it's like, there's almost no adaptation. And most research points towards neat and neat slash spa. So non-exercise activity from a Genesis slash spontaneous physical activity, which is the movement you make when it's not very conscious. Like I'm moving my hands now. Those kind of movements explain the most. So that's basically uh, superfluous, redundant movements. And some people are more sparing with that than others, whereas others are very liberal. And typically also, if you get to a higher body fat level, the body becomes a lot more liberal with its energy expenditure. Whereas if you get very lean, um, you you can actually notice, especially if you get contest lean, you become more like a zombie and your movements are really restricted to the, uh, to the, to the bare essentials.
0: Even down to, like you said, even how you hold yourself like posture wise Mm -hmm. and like even like your uh, gesture, like your facial expressions. I've even seen it with competitors where they're just kind of like minimal movement as much as possible. Um, And actually, this brings me to a question. A lot of people talk about kind of when you're contest lean being quite cold. And they put it mm-hmm. down to like the body fat. And I've always thought, I think body fat may influence it. Well, I, I'm sure it does. But I've always thought it maybe is more adaptive of your metabolism, like just keeping you cooler. Is that, how, is that right? I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, there are probably a few factors. And I've, I've experienced this myself um, very much. Actually, when I went on surfing holidays as a, during college, I could really notice what body fat percentage I was based on how cold I was in the water. So. Uh, for one, there's less insulation. I'm not sure how much of a difference that really makes. Like if you compare an obese individual with someone shredded, yeah, it's going to make a difference. But, you know, within say 12 to 8% body fat, you're you're really not talking that much insulation. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's the main thing. There is a thermogenic effect for sure. And that's both adaptive thermogenesis and also the thermic effect of food. So typically when you're leaner, you're also eating less. And... As, you, as basically anyone can attest, if you eat very large meals, you typically get warmer and sometimes even like sweaty and especially if it's warm food. So I think those factors together can actually explain pretty well why people are quite reliably um, more sensitive to cold when they're leaner.
0: Yeah, I think I, I've seen someone somewhere talking about kind of taking morning body temperature as like a gauge of how much your metabolism has suppressed. Yeah, you heard yeah
1: i've 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 tried that as well with okay. uh, I know Berger Fergerly did a lot of experiments with that in, in Norway with his clients. It doesn't correlate that well. okay. Um, for For one oral temperature or however you me- measure temperature it does not correlate that strongly with core body temperature. like you, you need to do directal measurements right. <laughs> but even if you do that, um, body temperature, like internal body temperature is not nearly as strongly correlated as you would think with metabolic rate. So me, for example, even when um, I'm very uh, at a very high energy intake, like forty-five hundred plus, my normal body temperature is often thirty-six point six or so, which is actually below normal. Like normal is like most people say thirty-seven, but I think it's thirty-six point eight in, in research, or maybe even a little less. And mine's like you know point two below that. I I have a fever if if I have thirty-seven, which most people would say it's normal. I have a fever, so I think for for a lot of people you see that that the the measures are quite different. Interesting. Plus, they also don't change that much over time. Like someone's um, body temperature may stay almost the same throughout contest prep with, with like minimal effect, whereas their metabolism tanks quite hard. Yeah,
0: interesting. Yeah, it's always something. Uh, I'm similar to you in that I adapt hard down and quite hard up. Maybe not quite mm-hmm. as extreme as you do, because I think yours is. Yours is a little bit more extreme than mine. And I wonder if actually, I wonder what your take on this would be. I was just thinking of like genetics for bodybuilding, being less adaptive to me sounds like a favorable thing because then massing is comfortable and it doesn't get, I don't know how uncomfortable you get, but my appetite to keep up with 4,000 plus calories is not fun. And then obviously cutting on less food is never a fun thing. So yeah, is that would you agree with that? Definitely. My appetite's also usually adaptive. When I'm lean, I have,
1: I literally have the largest appetite (laughs) relative to body mass of anyone I know. Uh, i even not relative to body mass, actually. Uh, There's always, when I have my PT courses, we do one meetup or pre corona, we used to do when people from all over the world fly to usually Amsterdam. And we have a day with like seminars. And then afterwards, we go out for all you can eat sushi. There are always a few people that are like, oh, I know Menno likes sushi. So I'm going to challenge Menno (laughs) uh, and see how much we eat. And I'm always like, Sure, let's do it, um, and I just eat normal, and I eat lots of like fillers and veggies to make sure I don't eat as much. And then usually what happens is at some point, they, they're like, oh my God, I'm full. So, okay, so I give up, and then I'm still eating for another half hour. <laughs> so, But that's when when I'm bulking, especially the past year, when I'm bulking like long-term, and like six months of 4,500 plus calories, yeah, it becomes force feeding. Like I'm, I'm using shakes, And uh, it's not fun anymore.
0: Do you have, like, what are your strategies? Like, is it liquid calories? Do you kind of try and avoid as many whole foods? I guess fiber, you keep that under control. Is there any strategies you have?
1: I want to keep it super healthy. Um, Actually, I have a big genetic risk of cardiovascular disease. Okay. Um, So genetically. So I I want to keep it super, super healthy. I actually noticed, like, if I eat more saturated fat, my cholesterol goes um, bad really quickly much more quickly than you would expect uh, and much more quickly than I see my own clients often Um, so I keep it super super healthy still want to get the fiber in almost always just whole foods like white rice for me is like as cheat food as it gets and uh, that that complicates things so lots of nuts lots of liquid calories Um, if you tolerate chocolate which for me is like acne breakout instant but if you tolerate chocolate then Uh, Chocolate's great and chocolate with nuts and just matching it together, like hazelnuts, chocolate, some sweetener, and just make like a a big bowl (laughs) that can be like a 1500 calorie, just chocolate hazelnut bowl. Uh, That that works well. Uh, Making sure you start eating early because for me, I don't have any appetite in the morning. Like I respond super well to intermittent fasting, which is why I did it a long time. But when bulking, it's basically if it's 12 and I'm like, oh, I haven't eaten breakfast yet, then it's, this is going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. So that, that really uh, has a big effect. In, in general, I'd say that very high meal frequencies make it a bit easier to, to eat enough. Because especially when you're cutting, you can just eat yourself until you're like really full. But when you've passed that point while bulking, uh, afterwards, it just becomes much more dreadful for the rest of the day. Whereas if you're just like constantly full, okay, full, a bit less full, full, it's fine. But once you've hit that point where you're like, I really don't want to eat anymore, then um, uh, it becomes extra tough. Yeah. Uh, and just some foods that are that you really like. Like for me, sushi, for example. Just it, I mean, it's it's not that energetically dense, but I can eat so much sushi. Like White rice for me is just, I can just keep eating it. And two hours later, I can eat more.
0: <laughs> I guess that's why it's a big bodybuilding food. Like... It's like rice is just like, mm. and I guess it's like for a lot of people, they digest it well. So I think that also comes yeah. I in. I think but-
1: actually uh, FODMAPs are a very big issue in what people consider like a clean foods, um, Like white rice is something basically nobody has adverse GI reactions yeah. to. Whereas a lot of other foods, so broccoli is a bit mixed actually. But some other foods, you don't see many um, bodybuilders eat cabbage, for example. Even though it's super satiating, super nutritious, super cheap you know, so objectively, it's great gut food, but a lot of people get very severe GI issues. I think that's also the reason like lactose intolerance is quite prevalent, especially in the US uh, and in the world at large, lactose, most of the population, I think, uh, like of the entire world population is lactose intolerant. And I think that's a big reason that dairy was thought of as a non-clean food, even though research shows like, You know, it's super high protein quality. It's quite satiating. It has the calcium, which is good for muscle contractility and satiety. And, um, you know, it's quite satiating, pretty affordable, easily accessible. You can either have it in liquid form and then bulk, or you can have, like, the thick quark or cottage cheese, and then it's great for cutting. But it's still sort of shunned by the traditional bodybuilding community, and I think that's in large part due to lactose intolerance. Because you eat it, you get digestive issues, you get bloated, and people... Mistake that for fat gain.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I I, I would definitely concur with that. And I found when I, not this time, I've been cleverer, but the last time I was massing and I got to this point, I was relying a lot on like dairy basically and having like Mm -hmm. chocolate milk to get the calories in. And I just felt not great. And then I kind of assessed my diet and I was like, oh, I'm having a lot of lactose. So I found reducing that down helped quite a lot. So yeah, once you do get to the number of calories you're on, you have to pay attention to if things don't sit well with you you can't afford to have that in your diet because you can't eat anymore (laughs) once you've had it
1: It, it's funny with lactose tolerance how much that uh how, how regional that is so i'm i'm northwestern european so i can i can literally drink a liter of milk uh and zero issues so if you go to like scandinavia i've heard some people say when you mention lactose intolerance they're they're a bit like Is that really a thing? Like, It's a bit like gluten intolerance, you know, where they're like, you know, I'm not really sure if that's really a thing yet.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Cool. So, yeah, we'll get to the next question, which is from Aiden Koch. And he has asked, um, I'd be curious to hear Menno's recommendation to help fix muscle imbalance between sides. For me, when performing any bilateral movements, I always feel my right quad slash hamstrings and barely feel the left side. Even with unilateral movements, the left side eventually fatigues, but sensation slash burn is much slower.
2: Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Mm. So
1: I wouldn't put too much stock in the sensation part because people are very limp dominance is a very real thing and it changes per movement. So for example, a lot of people have if you think of uh, soccer or kicking, the left leg is more stable, but the right leg is more dexterous, more more mobile. So if you want to kick a kick a ball, then you'll you'll use your right leg, but you can. Ma- um, see that during some exercises where the left leg is used for stability, maybe Romanian deadlifts, for example, unilateral Romanian deadlifts. And some people actually prefer the left leg. So it's research also finds that the limp dominance is, is movement specific. And I wouldn't put too much talk into like how you feel the movement because, you know, if you try riding with your left or right arm, it, it all feels very different, but for some tasks, um, what you want to do is see if there's objectively a difference in performance. So it's really important to measure if you're actually stronger. And also if there's actually a size discrepancy because I can't recall how many clients I've had that say, and my right arm is so much more dominant than my left arm. And I'm like, okay, let's do the measurement, test the strength. And it's like, it's actually the same size. And you know, it just looks a bit different. Like the assertion points may be a little bit different. Actually it's the same size and your strength is really not that different. Like it's normal. There's always gonna be a strength asymmetry. Like one or two reps is basically a non-issue for most people, sometimes even more than a few reps. But when you do have an asymmetry, what you want to do, uh, so when you've, you verify that objectively, basically, then you want to check um, how large it is. And if it's more than like, like I say, a few reps or in strength with a given weight, um, or there's like pronounced size difference, then what you want to do uh, is see whether it's strength and size or only strength or only size. And what you can do then is train with, Um, different intensities. So if you have one side, for example, that's like say your right side is a lot stronger, but it's uh, roughly the same size. What you can do is you can train the right side of your body with higher reps, which will make it grow at the same rates approximately, but gain less strength so that the left side can catch up. You train it with lower reps, it gains the same amount of size, but uh, it catches up in terms of strength development. In general, a good rule of thumb is always also to at least have some unilateral movements, like one arm, one leg movements, in your program, because if you only have bilateral movements, actually, there was a study on this I think about a year ago, which showed that um, during a bench press, even in very trained individuals, there is still quite some asymmetry between sides, in which side is more active, and I think they also showed that it doesn't uh, go away over time, like it can actually become stronger, so. Um, because if it's still, you're lifting one weight, the fact that you're using it with uh, two arms, but it's still just one weight. So one side can compensate a bit for the other side. Uh, even if the barbell stays relatively horizontal, which is of course also a big priority. Make sure you're lifting symmetrically. And uh, if you have those things in place, I think usually it's actually not a huge issue. And especially if you just equate volume with unilateral movements, otherwise you're creating the issue. You know, If you do eight reps with the weaker side, stick to eight reps for the stronger side, typically. Um, then it usually doesn't become a big issue and it corrects itself over time, especially for a natural trainee, because in the end, you know, you just get to your natty max. And if it happens like six months later for the other side, it may actually not be a huge problem, especially if it's not a visual problem, because most research finds that strength asymmetry is not that strongly related to injury risk, not nearly as much as you would think, especially not during in sports like uh, bodybuilding and strength training. Uh, It's a bit of a different story in tennis and baseball and the like, which are asymmetrical sports to begin with. So that provides some uh, basically my my method in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, no, it, that's great. Uh, I think it's really good that you have layers to it where it's it's not just you are asymmetrical or you're not, because mm-hmm. I think it's like a lot of us have those slight asymmetries, which like you said, kind of don't matter that much or they're in our head. Um whereas the extreme ones, I, I don't I haven't dealt with many that have it as it, extreme as what kind of you laid out there being like multiple reps or quite a lot of weight. Uh, are they normally down to, I don't know, in your experience, is that normally like someone's been injured on one side and so it's become underdeveloped or is there, I guess some people, most people don't find that they have that extreme of an asymmetry.
1: Yeah, it can, uh, it can also sneak up on you. Uh, sometimes okay. it's with injuries, but sometimes you see it in people that just have never really tested it. And then for the first time in their lives, they do their leg curls on one leg. And then they knows, whoa, I can do 10 more with one side. Wow, yeah. So... Yeah, it's, it, I think it's sometimes it's also just like one movement and then it's just like a motor coordination issue. Yeah. It doesn't actually have to be much of a problem. But um, sometimes there's also a pre-existing injury. I had with when I dropped 400 pounds on my foot. Uh, it took a long time before my feet were equal in terms of calf raises again.
0: Yeah, I forget that you had that horrific. <laughs> that, that was yeah. so horrific. <laughs> um, so, yeah, cool. We'll get to the next question then, uh, which is from Scott Melinda. Um, why can't I say Scott's last name? I actually don't know how to pronounce his last name for some reason. Mislinsky. Mislinsky. Um He says, uh, awesome, uh, thanks, and please ask about and give your opinion, Steve. So maybe I'll give my opinion um, on the value of doing exercises in a circuit style with adequate rest versus all sets of one exercise, then another, et cetera. Um, yeah.
1: So I think... Um... I'm sort of in between. Like most people do straight sets, right? They do one exercise, they go to the bench press, they do one set, they rest a couple of minutes, they do another set of bench press, the rest a couple of minutes, bench press, move to the next exercise. And then you have circuit training, which is mostly famous for women in boot camp classes and like the, you know, the the circuit training setups, which is like 10 machines in a circle, which is a completely unbalanced program that like 50 plus uh, women typically also frequent and they do the circle training at 10 reps to failure. So it has a very bad reputation in that regard. But if you just let go of the idea that it has to be a circuit without rest, then suddenly it works really well. So most people with supersets, like there's literally not even a word, not even exercise science for something like a superset, a triset, set, a circuit, but doing it with rest in between. So you do bench press, chin-ups, but it's not like you do the bench press and then you run to the chin-up rack and you do your chin-ups. It's just like bench press, catch your breath, you know, rest a minute, do chin-ups, catch your breath, rest another minute, then do your bench press again. And that's what I'm actually a big fan of because okay. you can literally cut your time in half or, or less if you set up your workouts that way. And you can take advantage, although you then actually may need to rest briefly with antagonist supersets. Antagonist potentiation seems to be a real thing. There are numerous studies showing that it actually works, but it has to be within about a minute then. So it's not super practical. Um, but mostly you just save a lot of time and it also allows you to prioritize muscle groups more equally. Coming back to symmetrical development and stuff, because research generally finds that if the later in your workout, you do an exercise, the worse it's strength gains, especially if there are exercises before it's exercising the same muscle group, whereas if you do something like Lateral squats, you know, chin-ups, bench press, that's basically a full-body workout, maybe lateral raises in between or something. Then um, you can basically do it as a circuit, but with rest in between. I call them combo sets, okay. So because there's, there's literally not a, a word for it. Uh, so a combo set is basically like a superset or a circuit, but with rest in between. And, yeah, it just saves a lot of time, and it allows you to prioritize every exercise. It's not like, you know, by the time you get to your bench press, you've already done six sets of squats.
0: No, that's, that's really interesting. Actually, I've never heard of, um, yeah, I've never heard, well, actually not heard of it. I, I know it, but I've never heard it described like that where it's like we know if the first exercise you do within a workout routine, I mean, you can just inherently know that's going to get the best from mm-hmm. you because you're your freshest. So actually by spreading things a little bit more equally through the workout, you can kind of potentially get a bit from both. So, uh, yeah, I I never thought about it like that. That's pretty cool. Uh, And, yeah, like you described, when I hear circuit training, I think of, like, how gyms were first developed in all the machines and they were kind of developed for you to just, like, go from one machine to the next machine and just, like, top trot along, which, yeah, has uh, a a bad reputation probably for a good reason for hypertrophy. Um, But, yeah, I've never used combo sets, and I I tend to recommend for clients to do them kind of, uh, like, If you're doing bench, you do your bench, then you do your pull-ups, and then you go to what have you. I can see both absolutely working. Um, I I like the idea that I guess you could argue that for an advanced individual or non-technique heavy lifts, there's not much of this, kind of like doing the same movement and kind of you're in the groove with that movement so you don't Mm -hmm. kind of switch in between. Um, I don't know if there's anything to kind of the build-up of like, I I know you're kind of uh, down the mechanical tension route, Kind of so, cell swelling and stuff like this, so you get a bit of a buildup of metabolites if you kind of do all your bench in one go versus spreading it to another exercise. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Well, it, I think it basically comes down to rest intervals. So, research at this point is, is quite strong that actually longer rest is better yeah. because it allows you to do more work. And with combo sets, especially if you do your whole workout in like one, actually, I set up many of my workouts that way. Basically, the whole workout is one or two combos. And that means you can have very long rest periods. So when I'm in the gym, actually, what I do now is I go to one exercise, I do one set, and then basically I just move to the next one. And by the time I get back to the first one, I've basically done half or a third of my workout if I do three sets per muscle group. Uh, And it means it might actually be like 10, sometimes 20 minutes rest for the same exercise. And I can, uh, even then I have poor work capacity, so I, I won't hit the same amount of reps typically, but I can come very close. Whereas even after two, three minutes, sometimes my reps cut off in, in half. So I think actually uh, it would be more of a benefit to have longer rest. And uh, even if that comes with like less cell swelling and stuff.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I guess the, in my head, I'm thinking you're that guy in the gym now. That's like hogging every machine. <laughs> I guess the practical so I, concerns. I hog anything. I just go
1: from one to the next <laughs> no, yeah. and I, I move away. So cool. I'm just no, see that- if it's still there. <laughs>
0: That's interesting. I, I haven't heard anyone kind of describe it that way. So uh, that gives me some food for thought for sure. Um, so yeah, Scott asked another question where he said, um, uh, what did he change his mind about after training slash living with Dr. Mike? Um, he says specifically, did he change his mind on the value of periodization slash deloads set progression at all?
1: Um, it, it contributed to my booking. Um, Experience. I was already booking before, but it actually contributed to, to booking a bit longer. Uh having talked to Mike, he was also very much of the opinion that it can be beneficial to have these longer bulk phases. Um more like traditional bodybuilding, I guess. So that definitely played a role. Uh we had a lot of good discussions on exercise technique. I think we're we're generally with a lot of things we're on board. We're both we're both pretty strict on technique. Um yeah, I mean, not like super big um, things. The meal frequency also, he definitely uh, was on the same some camp. But funny enough, when when I went away with Mike, uh, we we're really good friends, and we talk about uh, mostly non-fitness stuff. Okay. So it's it's actually really funny with with Mike and I that we're known as having relatively big differences in opinion about training and nutrition, um, especially at the top level, where you see that you know most people tend to converge more towards the same sides. Um, but we have you know, quite some differences of opinion. But if we talk about anything else, we have shockingly similar uh, opinions. Like I actually, um, I once joked and I, I pretty much stand by that. Like if I had to nominate one person as president, like dis- disregarding how it, they'd actually function politically, whatever, but just in terms of like opinions of society and what, how they would structure things, I would probably make Mike president. Like the politically and philosophically, we have enormous overlap beliefs
0: cool now that we need that as like a soundbite now so that everyone can <laughs> get that from you that's really cool i know he he you're i don't think you're as open with yours as he is he shares his quite openly on instagram and things and mm-hmm. yeah uh that's cool that you align quite well i think that, yeah, I mean, that makes for good friendships, let alone the divergent opinions on kind of excise science and everything, which I know you respect one another greatly, which, and you need that, actually, I think it's great, because that's what helps like evidence based practice get further to the truth when people have different ideas. And I think people like black and white answers, but it's, it's just not that way. And there's many, I guess. I, in some ways I hate this phrase, but it works well in this case, like many roads to Rome in some ways. So, uh, mm. so, um, yeah, he actually had one more question and that was how does Meno program differently for enhanced individuals?
1: Uh, more everything. So, uh, I also, sometimes I joke about enhanced lifters, but I actually think that like hardcore bodybuilding is, is much more serious and, um, respectable, even in that way, when you're talking at the enhanced level, because you have more volume, more protein. Actually, I actually think protein needs. The reason bodybuilders typically eat so much protein is because they're enhanced, and I think it actually works if you are enhanced. It makes sense, right? Because there's always this debate. Some people say, "Well, nitrogen retention is higher," yeah. But protein breakdown rates are like like this, because it's not like the body, you know, just breaks down protein for no reason. It breaks down protein to remodel the tissue, typically, unless you're starving. And protein synthesis rates are like this, and enhanced, they're like this. So protein synthesis rates increase many fold. And you know, if you get a little bit of a decrease in protein breakdown, that's not gonna change protein recommendations that much. So I think protein intakes for enhanced trainees are much higher. The energy surplus you can use, like this is something that anecdotally I I stand by pretty strongly. I'm, I'm always very skeptical of what I see in my own clients, but when the lean bulk I talked about with natural trainees works super well. If you add more calories, you get the same thing that you see in research. You add a lot of fat and really not much muscle. Enhanced trainees, completely different story. You add more calories, weight rises more. Calipers still aren't budging. More calories, more weight gain. Calipers still aren't budging. So yeah, it's very different. It's just more aggressive in every way, like more volume, more calories, more protein, uh, just you know much more intensive training. I think things like train twice a day, they become much more relevant when you're getting to that kind of training volume. So it's just, yeah, much more hardcore, basically.
0: That, yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. Uh, I know I, I have heard different opinions on the protein thing, which is really interesting. And actually that relates to someone else who had a question, which is about your kind of um, your recommendations on protein, whether they've changed in that. I think that they were saying that your opinion is normally lower than the general recommendations you see out there, like maybe less than one gram per pound, I assume then. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'd say that it depends on what you define as like the general recommendations. Yeah. Because there hasn't been a single study still showing any benefits of more than 1.6 gram per kilogram per day protein under nutrient timing and energy controlled conditions. And I realized that last month there was a new meta-analysis seemingly showing benefits all the way up to I think 3.1 gram per kilogram per day. But it had, I think, 105 studies or something and only four of those not sure about the exact numbers, but something like that, only four of those actually had all factors equated within the same study. So that's kind of study where, you know, are those benefits of protein or is it just because when you add protein, you're also adding calories? It's a huge one. And you also see that studies where they add the protein, like post-workout, for example, if they didn't have post-workout feeding, or if they were training fasted in one group and they added protein pre-workout in the other, those things can also have an effect. So you're basically aggregating the benefits of more calories, better nutrient timing, and more protein. And you know, that doesn't mean it was the protein that had the beneficial effects. So yeah, I still, generally 1.8, per, 1.8 gram per kilogram per day, except for like enhanced trainees, people with muscle memory, then I, I go higher.
0: Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. And with that, is that um, kind of all protein from every source or is that kind of your high quality, good digestibility, full amino acid profile proteins?
1: Right. So this is something that I think a lot of people actually don't know, but traditional protein recommendations are based with the assumption that 50% of the diet's protein comes from high quality sources. So that's also exactly what I tell my clients. At least 50% of every meals it's per meal, right? Because, you know, if one meal is only uh, gelatin or something, it, it, it still cannot necessarily compensate for other meals. So it's 50% of each meal's protein target has to be from high quality sources. And this is typically not really much of an issue except for vegans. Then it's... That's a very serious issue. And then you get into very different protein recommendations depending on which foods exactly they do eat. For example, if they're okay with eating bifelves or if they're lacto-ovo or truly vegan, uh, if they're supplementing protein powers. um, Yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah, and if people want to learn more about that, uh, probably before this one comes out, I did a whole podcast with Eric Trexler on like vegans Mm -hmm. and protein recommendations and what they can do there. So it goes crazy in depth and all of that. So no, awesome. That was really interesting. Uh, so the next question is from Tracy Patterson and she has said, uh, you're, he's, she's interested in your views on women training differently to men based on evolutionary differences, fiber types, energy sources, hormonal differences, uh, in terms of us, well, actually I'll let you answer. I think she go. I think mm-hmm. she's done some reading into some of your stuff. So yeah, she's just interested you to hear you expand on that.
1: Um, I typically, um, have the same opinion on that that I think women should train slightly differently than men on average. Uh, main difference being they do more; they should do more reps for a few reasons. I think it's also a big practical issue in that women often, especially for something like a lateral raise or movement where the lowest weight is relatively high and the increment in weight, so it's like five pounds, increases, can actually be really problematic. So it's much easier to go up in reps than to increase the weight. So. More fan of what I call rep range progressions in women for that reason, uh, and in men uh, I'm a big fan of trying to add weight whenever possible because it's simply the most reliable way to tell someone stronger. Like you can't fake a 30, fifty pound increase in your bench, like you know density training and stuff. Yeah, it's all like a bit iffy, has some some considerations, but you can't you know like I said you can't fake a fifty pound increase in your bench. So that's a bit of a difference. Um, women tend to tolerate, even if only due to maybe, maybe it's just injury sensitivity, but definitely anecdotally, and based on some research, uh, scarce research, I might add, women can probably tolerate a few more sets per week than men. Um, overall, the differences aren't major. They can also rest a bit less long, but you should still auto-regulate, auto-regulate it. Um, One big difference that is not really practically relevant for me, but research actually shows is significant. Women respond quite poorly to sprint training. They get less protein synthesis and they get more fatigue. So that's interesting. That's actually one area where it makes sense because that's the prototypical area where everything that should be good in men is like for sprinting and everything that should be good in women is more more endurance oriented. So sprinting is like sort of the prototypical male activity in terms of Know, genetic predisposition at least. Um, other than that, I mean, all the same principles apply. It's not like I advocate being double training. It's like a few more reps, like slightly shorter rest periods, maybe a little bit more volume, maybe slightly higher fat intakes, burning a bit on a bit more fat, slightly lower carb. Uh, protein in, I don't decrease even though research finds that you might be able to decrease it by I think 11% one meta-analysis showed, but it wasn't statistically significant so not big difference but some subtle some subtle changes for sure
0: cool yeah she she actually went on to ask and you may have covered this in what you're just saying because i mean she she says uh, what would be a good place to start in terms of volume if you have a general recommendation and uh, how to determine when to progress volume uh, when setting up a program for an early intermediate who's been spinning their wheels perhaps not pushing hard enough for fear of overtraining not being able to recover for the next session etc
1: so typically I actually set the starting volume the same as for men. Like I would basically act in terms of volume calculations as if they were male, but then I look at their work capacity, which I do for every client. And if I see that, like most women have, they have better work capacity than men, which means their reps may go like eight, eight, seven, seven, whereas for a male at equivalent strength level, etc., it might be more like eight, six, five. So, uh, eight, six, five, four. And. If you see that, then you can probably add some volume, especially to those exercises that have really good work capacity. I think work capacity is, is one of the most um, most sensible things to, to really look at in your clients, because uh, it tells you a lot. It can also tell you if they're training seriously, because if it goes like uh, eight, 11, four, yeah. then you're like, eh, <laughs> I think we need to work on uh, either technique or uh, training efforts. But if you see it's really high, it means objectively there is little neuromuscular fatigue. Also good if a client, for example, says, I think I may be overreaching or overtraining. And if you see, well, actually you're progressing in strength and your work capacity shows, which is in research also called fatigue index, uh, not much fatigue, maybe 10% fatigue. Uh, if you go from uh, eight to four reps, it's 50% fatigue index. So uh, that typically, if, if you're uh, over 50% fatigue index, that's quite high. If you're under 20%, that's, that's low. So those are some decent rules of thumb. And based on that, you can see where you can probably handle volume a bit more or less.
0: That's really interesting. Actually, I think you've spoken it on the podcast before, actually, because yeah, I recognized that from you before. So that's really cool. I yeah. just uh, In terms of, um, obviously, you said about the reps dropping off. Is that with the same load targeting the same kind of reps and reserve? Or I think you actually use yeah. something different, like reps to failure or something, I think you use. Yeah,
1: I call it reps to failure. Reps and reserves, act, it's basically the same thing. just yeah. depends on how you define it. Because if you say, like... Uh, like zero reps to failure I define as failure and then one rep to failure is you do every rep you can. Um, I think it's just slightly more intuitive for like because like if you do zero reps in reserve, does that mean you're actually training to failure or just doing every rep you can? Um, so it's basically the same, uh, same thing as reps in reserve, uh, which is a big improvement over rating of perceived exertion because if you're actually just rating perceived exertion, it's very fallible. Like it changes with uh, if you're listening to music, uh, changes between individuals where some people are like it's just a flash wound, I was a Nam, <laughs> and uh, other people are like it's uh, you know it's it's unbearable. I couldn't push for another possible rep, um, or and, you know they, they give it a very different RPE rating, even though they're go- both going one rep to failure. So uh, it's basically the same thing as as RIR. Yeah.
0: So is that sorry? Just to confirm, was that so that in those examples, it's the same load for the same. Uh, reps failure. Right. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You need to do the same same weights. Otherwise, you, you have no information, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you technically also need to standardize the rest interval. But my experience is that if you tell people to rest until they feel recovered to perform maximally again, which is what I often do if, if time is not a limiting factor, then it's um, consistent enough. Like people, research also typically shows that people are relatively consistent. They do tend to rest longer as they get fatigued. Uh, later to the end of the workout but it's it's not a huge difference and people do it very similarly
0: cool perfect right we get to the next question uh so actually i don't think i did ask this but i was there was a time when it came up where i almost did so it was eris d and he asks does Menno ever add sets week to week? What criteria does he use if he does? So I guess you maybe just answered that. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So I'm not I'm not a big fan of like um, block periodization, I guess you could call it, where you're just sort of ramping up sets. Um, so I use different methods from, from Mike, for example, in this regard. But uh, I use things like work capacity to see if we add a set. And then typically that set's there to stay for at least a certain period and to evaluate how they respond to that. Okay. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm generally a big fan of looking at more long-term changes to see how someone responds because i think it's it's so difficult to see in in one week if someone's handling a particular volume well or not
0: cool perfect um the next question is from instagram actually so i just got i pulled a bunch from there uh actually one of them because we've talked about it i'm going to ask it would you ever go vegan i'm actually interested to know as well
1: no probably not uh, like, like for, for, for what reason, like ethically or like performance wise or uh, basically none of them.
0: <laughs> yeah. I know for me, it, it's very challenging as a bodybuilder actually. Cause like you said, yes. there's a lot of complications. It's getting better. Um, I'm waiting for, uh, like where they can like synthetically create actual like meat products, uh, through like test mm-hmm. tube. I've gone what it's called where they can like grow it in a lab or whatever. Then I'll be like, cool. I can go like fake vegan. I guess that would be kind of, well, it'd be pure vegan if you wanted it to be, <laughs> yeah Uh, i
1: think also environmentally and uh, ethically there there are some things you can say for both sides but main thing environmentally is that the production method of the meat is much more important than eating meat or not so you can actually make meat very sustainable in like i don't know the details but you can make a certain farm or ecosystem set up in a certain way that's actually very sustainable um, and you're still eating meat
0: On the, do you have much knowledge on the ethical side? I'm just interested. I don't know if it's something that it's like something you've looked into a major... Yeah, I
1: mean, there there are quite some arguments you can make for for both things. Um, One big thing to note is that also environmentally, the effect of eating meat is, is not that large. And especially if you factor in if someone uses good production methods. So if you compare it, for example, to using the dryer, I think using the dryer statistically on average is like three or five times more influential Uh, if you're using a car also similar story much much more influential and which also if, if we're looking at it it becomes very difficult i think when you're basing life decisions on environmental impact as an individual because having a child is by far like like literally if you look at a graph of like a few things like dryer and stuff like this and then having a child is like here because you're creating another human being that, for, you know, approximately 80 years is going to produce carbon dioxide and various other methane gases, whatever. And uh, they're also going to use the dryer. They're also going to use a car. Uh, they may not be vegan and et cetera, you know. So um, if, if you really wanted to, uh, like if your main argument was we all should live in such a way not to uh, put any strain on the environment, then, you know, by that benchmark, someone that has, say, two children is always going to be a worse person. Than someone that has one child and actually uses a dryer, takes the car, eats lots of meat. So I'm not sure how uh, well you can use it. Also, ethically, in terms of like animals, I think most most ethical systems, they move more towards a, uh, you know, like the Bible and and Kant's categorical imperative, basically act towards others as you would want them to act towards you. Uh, Well, animals have absolutely zero issue with killing you and eating you. (laughs) So. In that regard, there's also the question of whether you should spare life, and then if you spare life, you know where do you draw a line? Should we spare insects, for example? What about uh, things that actively hunt on us, like uh, uh, bugs that ha- uh, have malaria, or insects? So I think I think it's uh, a bit grey, and uh, it, it can certainly be admirable uh, to be to go vegan, but there's also definitely people that uh, do it for that reason and you know, see it more as like a virtue signaling and uh, par- parade with it. And that I'm definitely not a fan of. Yeah,
0: no, for sure. It's interesting because it's it's in my life quite a bit because my girlfriend's vegan. And uh, so like I, I see... It a fair bit and obviously it's just getting bigger and bigger so i'm always interested especially from an evidence-based perspective because unfortunately a lot of like we see like the netflix documentaries and things like this and they're just it's not a good source of information for it so i'm always yeah. i i've done a ton of digging so i'm always interested here so someone who has an evidence-based perspective where they li- lie with it so very interesting to hear your thoughts i think we probably have time for one more question so um actually this i guess uh, it lies into something we were talking about already. It was, how do you define failure? And then how much fatigue difference between, as I say, zero RAR to one to two to three?
1: Right. That's a good question, actually. So a lot of people, um, when we talk about failure, they don't really define what they mean by failure. And typically, it's because when you just say failure, researchers typically mean by that what they call momentary muscle failure, which means it's not about effort or anything, like it's objectively impossible to complete another rep. That's momentary muscle failure. So the muscle is simply incapable of producing the amount of force needed to move a given resistance uh, against gravitational resistance. So, or given weight against gravitational resistance. You have to define separate that, which is also a little bit of an artificial construct, right? Because there are scenarios maybe where you know is it really physical or if you had put a gun to someone's head they could have done another rep and then there is which brings you to volitional failure which is the the point people stop us at and volitional failure is a big issue in exercise science because it varies a lot between individuals so there are people where they're they're already doing partials for example with chin-ups and they're like "The, the the chin's still like getting there it's close it's close like i'm not a failure yet and there are people like I'm I'm getting a sweat. I'm I'm, I'm done. Like I had failure, you know, so. Volitional failure is a much more subjective indicator and it is very strongly affected by someone's motivation level. So in terms of like reps in reserve, reps to failure, it can be much more variable. Momentary muscle failure is relatively consistent because you need pretty extreme measures like putting a gun to someone's head to, to really affect it. If you can affect it at all. And um, like I said earlier, you need some method If you're using RIR or reps to failure, you need to define what actual failure is. Because like I say, if you're saying no reps in reserve, it, does that mean like actual momentary muscle failure? Or does that mean you're just not doing any reps you think you can't do? And then also the question is how experienced are they? If, you know, if you think you can't do another rep, uh, does that mean there's a high likelihood that you actually couldn't do that rep? And the best way to learn that, in my experience, is simply experience. So you just need to go to failure um, in your, your training career. And then typically, once you've learned that, uh, it's a skill that you, a bit like bicycle riding, it's you you know the feeling and you have a pretty good idea. So it doesn't have to be super complicated. But it is definitely important to, to know these definitions, both for interpreting research and for instructing clients on how much they should push themselves.
0: Yeah. No, definitely, because I think... I think I maybe even asked Brad kind of like, "What's the definition of failure?" And he was like, "He was like, there isn't actually one definition within research. There's like mm-hmm. like different people, um, and different researchers have taken people in different ways within studies. So even I think it was interesting that." Like sometimes people obviously, and I guess in studies, this has been shown where people aren't truly going to what they believe is failure. It's almost like, oh, maybe we can even leave more in reserve than we thought as advanced training. Mm -hmm. Who knows if it's applicable, I guess.
1: Yeah. This is actually, this is a big, uh, big pet peeve of mine in that you, sometimes it's implicitly wrong in research because you see a study protocol, for example, that said subjects completed uh, four sets of eight reps at 8RM training to failure. And that's impossible, yeah. right? There is no way. If it's your actual 8 you can do it once, maybe twice. Maybe women sometimes can do it three times with ten minute rest in between. But there is almost no individual on the planet that's actually going to be able to lift their 8RM four times in a row, and especially not if it's like you know two minute rest periods. So it's really annoying because then you don't it, you don't really know where it's wrong. Yeah. Like, are they were they just not hitting their 8RM? Like, were the reps dropping off? And if that's the case, they count it as eight reps in terms of the volume tracking because if it was volume equated, then that changes things. So yeah, that's that's a big issue still in research.
0: I assume, Menno, you also, when you're talking about failure, it's kind of like, I guess, form failure also comes into it. Is that something I imagine you're a fan of?
1: Yeah, you can also define technical failure, which is the point at which your technique breaks down. It's also a little bit more subjective such arbitrary because you have to define yeah. what good technique is. And a lot of people will mistake Velocity with good technique, in my experience, so they they will stop when bar speed starts slowing down a lot, and that's that's not necessarily bad technique. In fact, it's a prerequisite for maximum uh, mechanical tension in the muscle fibers because fibers cannot produce maximal tension and move at high velocity at the same time. It's they're inversely correlated. So, yeah, if if you define it well, for example, I definitely say that you should stop squatting, for example, if your your back starts rounding. But then there's also the issue of, did your back start rounding because you weren't paying attention to it? Or is that really what happens when you're going to failure? Because if you look at high level lifters, they don't reach technical failure typically before they reach muscle failure. They just reach muscle failure. So I'm not a fan of using technical failure because often it simply means that someone's, either it's mindset or technique that needs to work on, but it's not a reliable measure of proximity to actual failure.
0: That's really interesting. It's very true. If people aren't concentrating, it's it's easy to fail way before your muscles have actually given up because you've just misgrooved it because you weren't concentrating on the set at hand. So that's actually a, a really good point. Cool. Menno, we have uh, come to an hour now. So yeah, thank you for this great chat. It's been really cool doing this Q&A with you. uh, Hopefully, and everyone's enjoyed it, I'm sure. Uh, If people want to kind of keep up with you, um, I'm sure majority of them are already following you over on social media and over at your website, and they know where that is, but so they know. Mm -hmm. And if you have anything exciting to announce or anything like that, I know you said you've got your diet break study coming out.
1: Yeah, got a couple of studies coming up. Uh, my book's probably going to be released this year. It's not going to be about anything we discussed. It's going to be about the science of self-control, but I'm excited about that. Um, but yeah, like Benoensimals.com or Benoensimals on Facebook slash Instagram, you can follow everything I'm about to.
0: Fantastic. I'll make sure that's linked below. And when when I think I've heard you speak about this book, when is the book out?
1: Still not determined. We're okay. at, I'm at the last edit stage. Uh, it's pretty much fully written. Uh, referencing is complete working with Amazon now to uh, set up uh, type setting and stuff
0: yeah and is that just if I can ask is it kind of is it nutritional focus like self-control for nutrition or is it just like in life in general
1: it's life in general but there's a specific chapter on diet adherence awesome
0: yeah Yeah, I think I might have to drag you back on to dig into that when that comes out and I can have a look at it but for now thank you so much for coming on and we'll talk to you soon guys take care
2: Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche it is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging, we're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth telling you how to execute them, kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets.